0: Hey everyone, welcome to Locked on Lakers for Thursday. Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky. Andy, we've got basically one more day before the circus starts again. And with that in mind, we wanted to bring you kind of something a little different and a little special. Uh, We spoke last week to Mike Sealski. He's a columnist with the Philadelphia Inquirer and the author of a new book about Kobe Bryant. It's called The Rise. Kobe Bryant in the pursuit of immortality really uh, a a great story about Kobe's origins and what drove him as a young guy and a young player a great interview we're really happy to bring it to you we'll do that next you are locked on Lakers your daily Los Angeles Lakers podcast part of the locked on podcast network your team every day Thanks to everybody for making Locked on Lakers your first listen of every day, Monday through Friday. We get this thing up early for you as as wherever you get your podcasts, uh, however you get your podcasts. And so we appreciate you tuning in. Um, Another guy with a podcast of his own and more importantly, a book of his own is Mike Sealski. He is author of The Rise, Kobe Bryant in the Pursuit of Immortality, the narrator and writer of the I Am Kobe podcast. And he's a columnist with the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, and he has been kind enough to give us some time to talk about the book. Mike, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Brian, Andy, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much.
1: For listeners who are unaware, you actually are from that area. You were extremely aware of, you know, Kobe's career and sort of like the, the burgeoning guy that was Kobe Bryant. Um, and with with that in mind, I, w- I want to get into the dynamic during this interview about just Seeing Kobe as you know a kid at this origin point, but just even going back further than that, with with the concept of the book, what drove you to want to focus on this as as the area to focus on with Kobe, like th- like this period in his life before he became truly Kobe Bryant?
2: Well, I'd always been fascinated by Kobe just as a figure and an athlete. He just seemed so complex, and I, I didn't cover him day to day. With the Lakers but anytime he would come to town and I would write about him you know in my job for the Inquirer and I knew people in the area who were close to him Um, and this was the story about Kobe that I could tell it was a story that I knew that I grew up immersed in and that in my work environment I had been very very familiar with Um, I was an undergraduate for instance at LaSalle University in Philadelphia when Joe Bryant was the assistant men's basketball coach there so you know, as a college student, I was in this kind of anticipatory mode of Kobe, like maybe he'll come to LaSalle and, you know, resurrect our basketball program. And that, that, you know, turns out to be a thread in the book a little bit too. Um, And I just thought, you know, I wanted to do the elevator pitch I came up with, with for the book was I wanted to do Batman Begins for the Black Mamba. I wanted to show how this figure who had taken on Such a seminal place in our culture and the way we looked at sports had become the man and the figure that he became. And I thought that if I could tell that story of his early years, you know, what it was like in his high school career, what it was like growing up in his family, why he decided to skip college and jump to the NBA, all of those things the good, the bad, the complex I could cover all those aspects of his life in this one period in his first 17 or 18 years by telling that story. And so, it was the story I knew best. It was a story I could tell. I had access to the people and the material, research material involved. And I thought, let me give this a shot.
1: And that's really it's interesting, too, just the idea of Kobe's origin story and part of that mythology. Like you said, the the Batman begins version of
0: this Kobe is so much of what Kobe became was centered in mythology. That's exactly where I was going. Kobe was, I think, both fascinated by
1: and also a manipulator of mythology, and, and that was something that you know Brian and I saw all the time in our period covering him. Like you know, he was hyper aware of his own mythology and his own legend, and he was not above manipulating it you know, for his own needs. And frankly, he was brilliant at it.
2: Yeah. Um, I I was just going to say, Andy, what's interesting about that is in his, and I get into this in the book, in his 10th grade year, he takes an honors English class with a teacher named Jeannie Mastriano who becomes kind of his academic and intellectual mentor in a lot of ways. And the entire basis of that class was the hero's journey. And, Mm -hmm. you know, In that class, Kobe reads the Iliad and the Odyssey, and Mastriano shows the Star Wars trilogy in class so that she can draw parallels between, you know, Odysseus and Luke Skywalker. And Kobe completely saw himself on that same kind of track. And it's just, it's perfect to hear you describe him that way later in his life because he felt that way as a sophomore in high school.
0: How much was kind of young Kobe? I mean, you, you know, you, you, talk about that, that sort of awareness, how, how much was he conscious of sort of creating a, a future, creating an identity, creating something? Cause you know, there's so much that in, 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 in going through the book where you like recognize aspects of Kobe, um, that we would recognize as we covered him and, and watched him play, but also, you know, the, it is different when he's a 15 year old kid, a 16 year old kid, um. Doing, you know, fifteen and sixteen year old kids stuff.
2: Yeah, I I think there's a lot of that, Brian. I think he was very aware of it. Um, mm. You know, when, when you hear an anecdote about him driving around with a friend of his who's a couple of years older in college, and they're going to playgrounds and courts in and around the city of Philadelphia, and Kobe's shooting, and the friend is screaming at him at Kobe's behest, "You're soft. You go to a white school. You couldn't <laughs> play in the Philly public league. You're not black enough." Because Kobe wants to kind of emotionally gird himself for what he's hearing and what he's going to hear both throughout his high school career and into the NBA. You know, when he when Lower Marion plays at a tournament his senior year in Myrtle Beach and thousands of people are in the Myrtle Beach Convention Center for these games and hundreds of them are lining up for his autograph. And he's saying, hey, this is what I've got to do. I'm going to I got to get used to this. I'm going to be a basketball superstar. You know, time after time after time, I kept uncovering these anecdotes that show just how aware he was of who he was at that time. And more importantly, to your point, guys, who he was going to be, Mm -hmm. who he saw himself becoming. He was incredibly aware of it at an early age. One of his friends said, or might even have been Sonny Vaccaro, the sneaker mogul, saying, you know, Kobe was always one step ahead of everybody. And certainly when it came to his image and how. He saw himself and how he thought others would see him. That was very much on his mind.
0: Let's, uh, Andy and I are kind of fascinated too about this concept. And you, you know, you you kind of alluded to it of Kobe as an other uh, and aware that he didn't quite fit in. And I think that counts for Philly. It counts up for growing up in Italy. It, There's so many different ways in which this is impactful. So we want to kind of explore a little bit of that, and we'll do that next.
1: Locked on Lakers brought to you by Bet Online. Football may be over for the season, but basketball is in full swing for both pro and college hoops. For all the latest odds, totals, player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land, Bet Online is your number one spot for all your sports betting needs. Bet Online remains the best spot for all your sports scores, podcasts, and news this season. And it's not just basketball. Bet Online is your source for hockey, boxing, and UFC odds. And information. So head to the website today. Use your mobile device. Sign up today. Learn about all the trends and action. Bet online
0: where the games start. You know, you 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 mentioned Mike the 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 fact that like he didn't quite fit in the school he went into. You know, Lower Marion was a rich kid's school. It was you know, and all of these other aspects of of Kobe's upbringing. He you know, not being uh you know not growing up there. You know, having so much in Italy two questions I guess I have here is, you know, what were some of the other ways that that impacted? Do you think the way he attacked basketball and attacked that kind of persona that he wanted to create? And then I'm very, I've always been very curious. It's like, what happened? What would have happened if Kobe did grow up in inner city, Philadelphia, if he was part of that culture, like how that might've changed the, the the guy that he became. I think those are two great questions, Ryan. Um, The first one is um,
2: I think it, I think he used basketball as his way in socially um, at Lower Merion High School, Um, because you have to remember, you know, the the family, the Bryant family come back, comes back from Italy in the fall of 1991. Kobe's in eighth grade. It's the school year's already started. So he finishes out that school year and then he's heading to Lower Merion High School. And Lower Merion is a very posh area, but it's also very diverse. Um, It has plenty of diverse socially, racially, academically. So he drops in as a freshman in high school. You know, he hasn't come, he hasn't had the same upbringing the other black kids had. He hasn't had the same upbringing the other white kids have had. And he's coming out of Italy where he's basically spent the previous eight years of his life around people who don't look like him. He's, the the, the Bryan family is very tight. The five of them, his two older sisters, mother and father. So basketball is his way in to kind of figure out, okay, where, who am I and, and how can I fit into my social circles? And as it turns out, he's able to kind of move in various circles there. He can hang out with the jocks. He can hang out with the kids who are in his honors English class. He can hang out with the kids who like rap music. Um, He's not particularly close with any of those groups. So he always is kind of of the community, but kind of outside the community at the same time. This teacher, Gene Mastriano, told me uh, he told her one time that he was often very lonely and would dribble himself to sleep. Um, So basketball was kind of a security blanket and also the place where he knew he was going to excel. Um, So there's an interesting dynamic there in terms of whether he had grown up, you know, how different would he be if he had grown up in inner city Philadelphia? I think that's a great question. I I don't know that we would ever really know the answer to that. Um, I do think that the fact that he grew up in Italy and then in Lower Merion in some ways kind of diversified his thinking when it came to the way he approached people. I'm not sure he saw color to the degree that a lot of regular people or athletes or anybody else did. Um, You know, he was kind of searching for that, for the way that being black kind of fit into his identity. Um, One of the things I was surprised to learn about was that he joined the Black Student Union group at Lower Merion High School, the Student Voice, um, just because he kind of was exploring that side of what does it mean to be a black kid in this suburb? of Philadelphia. Um, and I think the fact that he grew up in these environments that weren't homogenous, whether it was all white kids, all Italian kids, all black kids, all from the same neighborhoods, he didn't have any of that. And so, you know, it, it, it allowed him to kind of move in different circles in a way that I'm not sure a lot of other athletes could. And I think you see that in how he interacted with the media, how he interacted with teammates. He could almost like try on personalities, like they were different outfits of clothing
0: and it's funny you mention that because uh, you know that that sense of otherness was i think a particularly defining part of his early career cuz he didn't he didn't fit in you go back and read the you know the the different accountings of his pro career and how he joined the lakers and what it was like for him on those teams he didn't fit in there at all um and and really struggled i think to find a voice and find a place um in those early parts of his career how long do you think otherness was kind of a central factor in his life. Um, do you think that's something he ever really completely worked around?
2: I'm not sure he ever really did, Brian. I, I mean, it might've lessened over time. Um, particularly once he ends up on the, the Olympic team in 2008, I guess, you know, i we get into this in the podcast a little bit about how guys on that team like LeBron and Dwayne Wade and Carmelo Anthony went to him and like, look, we need Kobe, but we don't need the Lakers Kobe. We need your defense and your determination and all these things, but we don't need you shooting it every time you touch it. Um and I think that otherness still kind of lingered even a little bit after he left the NBA, just from the standpoint that he became this kind of guru to so many players and people for the Mamba mentality that that you kind of had to you know, people wanted to seek him out to to find out, okay, how do how do I become great, Kobe? Somehow you've solved the riddle of what it means to be great and what one has to do to be great. So let us come to you and ask for advice and get your insight and things like that. And you know, that's kind of an otherness to it too. It's just different from what you accurately described early in his career, which is I'm 17, 18 years old. I don't have anything in common with the other 11 guys. I'm on the team with, they're not, they're much older than I am. They're going out the clubs. I'm not doing that. I'm not inclined to do that anyway. It's not like he was clamoring like, Hey, let me go party with all of you. It was, let me go work on my game. Let me go hang out with Arn Tellem's assistant and watch episodes of Mr. Bean on HBO, you know, in her apartment. Um, because that's what I'd rather do. And you know, that otherness that you're talking about, you know, was really profound and deep early in his career. And as you said, I'm not sure it ever really went away.
1: It's funny, actually, I remember late in Kobe's career, he talked about how because of his just relentless pursuit of greatness, he really did not have time to be the type of friend that he knew that, you know, being a great friend required like basketball and his family, you know, because he really did want to be Uh, a good family man, a good father, you know, particularly, you know, in, in light of everything that happened with Colorado and that stuff and, you know, resurrecting, you know, the relationship between him and Vanessa and all that stuff and friendship, there wasn't as much time for. And I remember Brian and I, one time were talking with a former teammate of Kobe's who for what it's worth, liked Kobe a lot and had a really good relationship with him. And Kobe did a lot of things for him, but I remember we told him that, Story, you know, that Kobe had said that and he hadn't heard that. And he just kind of laughed and he's like, I'm actually glad that he recognizes that. He's like, because being that guy's friend can be really hard and sometimes feels really thankless. Even though I, even though this was somebody, again, a teammate that really liked Kobe.
2: Yeah. And and you see that throughout his early life, right? Like, I think his teammates at Lower Marion High School would say exactly the same Mm -hmm. thing, you know, that he could be a normal kid, but. In a practice, if you're if you're in a rebounding drill with him and he's never lost a drill in his four years at Lower Marion, he will freaking shove you into the wall by the small of your back to grab that rebound. And he does that to like the, the second best player on the team, Dan Grazio, one day during his senior year. And Dan ends up going to the hospital because he's got stitches in his arm because he hits a a stud on the wall in the gymnasium. And Kobe doesn't even notice. He just raises the basketball over his head in triumph because he won the drill. And, you know, there's other anecdotes of him throwing the basketball at teammates and, you know, chasing them around the halls and things like that. And I think that's what you're talking about, Andy. It's like. Yeah, it was hard to be his friend at times because he was so demanding when it came to basketball. And that was so much a part of who he was. You know, he had kind of a quasi girlfriend throughout his first three and a half years of high school. She would come over to the Bryant's house and they'd watch tape of Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson together. Like, come on, Kobe, you got to be a little more romantic than that. (laughs) Uh, But that's just it. Like, it was so much a part of him. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that, how do you negotiate win, the other- Mike, you know yeah. even, even my game was better than that. <laughs> <laughs> how do you negotiate the other
2: parts of your life that mm. aren't connected to basketball? You know, he at the end of his junior year, for instance, Lower Marion loses in the state playoffs that they, they get bounced relatively early when they thought they had a chance to win the state championship. And Kobe breaks down in, in the locker room after the game. And you know, I couldn't help but hear that anecdote and think it's because, He's at 16 and all he sees himself as I'm supposed to be, and I expect myself to be the best player in the state. If I'm not that, if my team loses, what am I hmm. at age 16? And he's still got some growing, a lot of growing to do to figure out exactly who he is.
0: I, I, I want to make sure we explore a little bit. Cause you get into a lot in the book, like the infrastructure that kind of grew up around Kobe when he was in high school is sort of the circus that, that became cause, it feels like from another time and kind of is, I mean, the, the 1990s were a long time ago. Um, so yeah, I, 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 but before that, you know, you kind of alluded to his family. Um, so much of what we think about with Kobe and his family is defined by conflict. Um, the, the, the falling out with his parents and the issue over memorabilia and all these other things that, had to, what were, what what was his, relationship like and how 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 is important how important was uh his family in forming the guy he was when he was in high school? It was
2: very important. I mean the Bryants were incredibly close. Um one of his friends described them as the the royal family of Lower Marion, that they kind of came in and commanded this instant respect. Um, You know, as I said, his mother kind of ran the household, made sure that her kids were achievers academically, you know, were unfailingly polite, were friendly to everybody. Joe comes in and is the JV boys basketball coach, and he's, you know, a great guy. Everybody loves him. You know, I know the writer Chris Ballard from Sports Illustrated once described him as uh, Joe's the kind of guy who's got two minutes for everybody and two hours for nobody. Um, And that's, you know, that, that kind of gets to the heart of who he was. You know, as a person, and I think for Kobe, Kobe admired Joe incredibly, you know, just worshipped him in some ways, but I think also saw him as a cautionary tale when it came to basketball, because Joe's pro career did not go the way that he thought it should have gone. You know, in some ways, he was kind of ahead of his time as a player, six foot nine, able to run and shoot and dribble and do all these things that a player who was six foot nine in the 1970s and 80s generally wasn't permitted to do. Until Magic Johnson came along. And he's also a bit of a flake. He's kind of a ne'er-do-well. He's kind of the guy who misses the team bus to practice and things like that. and and Kobe would hear him talk about his career in the NBA, and I should have been better. I should have done this. he was he was bitter about it. And I think Kobe took that in and said, "I'm not going to be that. I'm going to rede- redeem the Bryant family name when it comes to basketball." Um and they were they were an incredibly close unit, you know, through their experiences in Italy through, you know, living in the lower Marion community and being part of that community and the status they had within that community and the, and the respect, the genuine respect and love that people had for them. Um, and I think that's what makes the, the fracturing of the family that you guys referenced so heartbreaking, you know, and, and just so hard for people to, to understand. I can't think of another way of putting this other than Kobe throughout his life could be really abrupt in some ways. And I mean that in like a deep sense. I don't mean that in just like he would just say something and be abrupt because he would do that too. But it was almost a sense of like he could, he could push you out or cut you off from his life. Yeah. Depending on the stage that he was in and moving toward, right? Oh, yeah. Like the one of the fascinating things to me about researching and reporting the book was how all his friends from high school really still saw him as the the kid they sat next to in class or the kid they rode with on the team bus to these various games. Um, And part of that was because so many of them didn't keep in close contact with him as he moved on. Now, part of that is natural. You know, you become a basketball superstar, you're going to leave people behind. But he, in some ways, could really leave people behind. Um, And I think he did that with his parents to a great degree, too. Um, One of his friends said Kobe wanted to do everything young. He wanted to make the NBA young. He wanted to get married young. He wanted to start a family young. And I think when you think that way, you're going to just leave people behind because you're constantly looking to the next stage of your life and you're doing the calculation in your head and in your heart. Do these people, should they continue with me to this next stage? And mm-hmm. if they don't, they don't.
0: So let's, let's, I going to get a little bit more into that, like sort of what it was like to be around Kobe and what the, 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 that circus was like. Um, because, it, it it just like i said feels like it's from another era uh, and kind of is and so we'll talk about it next locked on lakers brought to you by rockauto.com with the ever increasing numbers
1: of makes and models out there it is impossible to stock all the parts you would need in a traditional chain storefront and why would you spend 30% 50% 100% more for the exact same auto parts at a chain store or new car dealership anyway dummy you can get it for far less at rockauto.com for example Honda Odyssey fuel pump, 353 bucks from a chain store, only 216 from Rock Auto. RockAuto.com is a family business serving auto part customers online for 20 years. So whether it's for your classic or your daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. Go to RockAuto.com right now, see all the parts available for your car or truck, right locked on in the How Did You Hear About Us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need rockauto.com. All
0: right, Mike. So, I mean, I I thought some of the the fascinating stuff in there was, in in the book, in the rise, was kind of talked about the infrastructure that was built up around Kobe to deal with the attention, to deal with the media, to deal with all of that stuff that that came with it. Can you kind of describe what it was like to be at Lower Marion with Kobe Bryant as a, you know, sophomore, junior, senior, um, and all the attention that came with it?
2: Well, the irony of it, Brian, is that the attention really wasn't there until just before his senior year began. Mm. You know, um, for whatever reason, you would have thought back then that, you know, the son of a former NBA player being a terrific player in his own right at a suburban Philly high school would be a big story in the Philadelphia area. And it really wasn't until, you know, scuttlebutt started to pick up the summer before his senior year and then heading into his senior year at Lower Merion. But Greg Downer, his coach at Lower Merion kind of anticipates what's ahead. So he builds a coaching staff kind of in a thoroughly modern way of thinking about high school basketball that's going to kind of allow Kobe to flirt. So he's got one assistant coach who's the defensive guru, Mike Egan. He's going to, you know, th- here's what we're doing on defense. He's got his older brother, Drew Downer, who's kind of the team psychologist. He's the guy that the players can put their shoulders on and, and talk to, and Kobe can looks at him as a big brother. He's got Jeremy Treatman, who we haven't talked about yet. who's was a big factor in the book, who is kind of the media relations representative. He's going to handle all of Kobe's interviews and deal with the press so that Kobe himself and Greg don't have to deal with them. And then he brings on a guy named Jimmy Kaiserman, who had been a division one college player at Ryder University in the University of Miami, had played professionally overseas, 26 years old, tough point guard who can dunk in his athletic. And he's going to play against Kobe every day in practice because otherwise Lower Merion has nobody who can guard him and nobody who can challenge him on a day-to-day basis. And so you have that. You have the idea that Kobe would even play for Lower Merion High School. I mean, just a couple years into the future, you're talking about LeBron James playing at a private high school in Akron, Ohio. You know, if we were talking about Kobe today, he'd be at Monverde Academy or IMG Academy. But here he is playing for his neighborhood high school because, you know, his mother and father trusted the public school system to give him the academics and to say, hey, he'll he'll be great no matter where he plays. And so, you know, the the idea, for instance, finally, I would say that he knew he was going to make the jump to the NBA throughout his senior year. And it's this great mystery to the broader public. You know, he doesn't tell all that many people. He doesn't even tell Greg Downer, his his high school coach. Greg suspects that that's what Kobe's going to do, but Kobe never says it to him outright. And it becomes this kind of mystery that builds and builds and builds, even though Kobe knows he's not going to go to college. It's, uh, you're right, Brian. It's like from another time. It really is.
1: Well, I mean, it was kind of social media and and that age of it before social media, it's like you're building buzz, however you possibly can. But it also speaks to just cope. One of the things that Brian and I Noticed about Kobe and really admired him from covering him is when it came to just the aspects of marketing in general, he was always way ahead of his time. Like, you know, there was that that Nike spot he did, the hyperdunks, where, you know, he jumps over the Aston Martin uh, with Rony Turioff there. Mm -hmm. And it was a really clever, fun commercial that we had to talk down our readers who, I'm not joking, a lot of them thought that Kobe actually jumped over a car and they were worried (laughs) that he. Risked his career, and we
0: tried to. Can't believe them. he do that. Like, how can that be allowed in his contract? That he can jump over <laughs> like, guys. <laughs> trust us. We we
1: we, ta- we we know how this works. We we spoke with Rony. Like, there's never a car there. He did, but, not jump over. Car. But the thing. But the thing, though, about that spot, though, that is most remarkable. That I think gets forgotten is it was a viral ad. Like th- this was something that was being done for the internet as opposed to TV commercials. And that wasn't really done at the time, you know, Mm -hmm. like the idea of something being seen as much on YouTube uh, as anything else. And that was, I think, Kobe, you know, always looking ahead and I think understanding the idea of marketing in general and perception and how can I be ahead of these trends? And you can really see the origin of it there with how he handled that jump.
2: Yeah. Look at the press conference he holds when he makes the announcement. It's you LeBron's know,
1: he, press conference that you saw like
2: five years later. Or right, whatever.
1: Exactly. LeBron rips him off
2: with yes. the line about, I'm going to take my talent too, you know, yes. and Kobe is very cognizant for instance, about, I'm going to wear this particular suit, you know, that a friend of the family has purchased for him. And I'm going to wear these black oval sunglasses on my head. Mm-hmm. And you watch him in that moment. It's not a nervous kid who's kind of fidgeting with a piece of paper or notes he is supremely confident. He plays to that crowd in that gymnasium at Lower Merion that day, you know, uh, and I've decided to, and he pauses and Mm -hmm. there's a murmur in the crowd and he kind of pretends that he's thinking about it. It's like he's a talk show host or an actor and yet, and then boom, it's, you know, I've decided to take my talent to the NBA. He is totally in command of that moment. And at the time to get back to the, you, you know, Brian's original question about how it seems from another time, the reaction to that is so over the top negative
0: mm-hmm.
2: because it's how dare this 17 year old kid seem so arrogant and understand really that he has the control of his own future in a way that, you know, Mike Krzyzewski or Dean Smith or Speedy Morris, the coach at LaSalle does not have, you know, Kobe realized early on that he, those guys needed him more than he needed this, them. Well,
1: this was, I was going to say, uh, Brian, I, before we get to Brian's question, this was at a time when, you know, as a general public, we really did not like athletes having control of this stuff, and in yep. particular, young black athletes exactly. having control of this stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And they, the idea that he would do this mm-hmm. and, and not follow the traditional path to basketball greatness. What do you mean you're not going to go to spend two or three years in college and then make the jump, you know, go to the NBA from there. What makes you a six, six wispy guard think that you can make this jump, you know, to bring it back to the skepticism we had talked about earlier. Um, and yet he knew better than anybody that he could. What, what was
0: Kobe? how, how was, how, how was he popular? Like, did people like him in Philly? Because the reason I ask is because so much of his career was this sort of evolution of, you know, people, when the Shaq Kobe thing happened, um, you know, for for a long time, you know, Kobe was, um, you know the the punky kid and whatever. But and and people kind of remember Shaq is like happy and all these other things and like the the guy everybody in L.A. loved. But there was a stretch of time where Shaq was the bad guy. And Kobe was the, the good guy in LA and, and Sprite commercials, the, the, the you know, Sprite yeah. commercials and all this. And then Colorado happens, but you know, went through a stage where he was wildly unpopular and leaned into that, the black hat and, and all these other things. And then as his career grew on, he almost, I know, it was almost like a Jamie Connors effect where the guy that everybody hates kind of softens in his old age. You start to root for him because the context around him, around him changes. What was it like in high school? Was he, like beloved by people? Was he, you know, uh, did I I just, that, that dynamic of it is really fascinating to me.
2: Yeah. I think within the lower Marion community, he was, I think he was a point of pride for that entire community, especially because basketball had not been top of mind in that community for a long, long time. You know, as we've talked about, you know, generally pretty Tony, you know, fairly wealthy, lacrosse and soccer are going to be the sports with all the requisite stereotypes that come with them. And all of a sudden he opens up and I get into this in the book, kind of the history of the community, some of the racial tension there. And here comes this kid who kind of opens up this point of pride and joy to the entire community. You can be black, you can be white, you can be Catholic, Jewish, WASP. It doesn't matter you are now have the lower Marion basketball team and the best high school player in the country as reasons to go to the gym on a Tuesday or a Friday night. And everybody feels good about it. And he was so, he carried himself in such a way that he was polite. He was so smart. He got good grades, um, that within the lower Marion community itself revered And, and still people still look at him that way all these years later. um, I think within the broader Delaware Valley, that's where it gets thorny because he was not from Philadelphia strictly. He was from just outside it. And Philadelphia is so parochial and so like if you're from Philly, you should be proud that you're from Philly. And Kobe wasn't proud of being from Philly in the way most people around here are. Like I said earlier, he kind of thought himself like beyond it. He wanted Mm -hmm. to play for the Lakers when he was young. He was looking to move on. He didn't, you know, it wasn't like, He was always going to keep Philly in his heart. He kind of did. He paid some lip service to it. But really, he was moving on from here. He saw himself doing bigger and greater things on the West Coast. And I think people, there was always going to be a pocket of people who resented him for that.
1: There's an interesting detail in the book um, from a teammate of Kobe's at Lower Marion um, who talked about how as he was an adult, and this was a guy that I, I believe he was a bench warmer on the team. He didn't play a lot. But he talked about as an adult, you know, being in business and stuff, like the conversational value of being able to say that he was Kobe's teammate. Like it was just a great icebreaker, Mm -hmm. you know, and not like in a manipulative way, but just it's a great way to break through awkwardness of, you know, people that you're looking to do business with that you've never met before. In, In talking with teammates of his from high school, how have you found that they've processed both the experience of having played with Kobe? But also his death, because as we talked about before, it, it, nobody really stayed in touch with him. So it's not like they had these lifelong friendships with Kobe, but they had these lifelong memories and, in some ways, this experience that came to define them.
2: Yeah, it, it, they feel like parts of their past are gone. That that's how, what it comes down to, because they didn't. I, I think, you know, to your point, Andy. Because of the way Kobe carried himself, almost exclusively in public and certainly behind the scenes as well, with that I am always striving. I, I am the guy who will tell you how to be great. I have shown you how to be great through all my own, throughout my whole life. There's this fascination and curiosity about him. Well, what is he like behind closed doors? You know, what what is he like on the team plane or in you know interacting with his teammates behind the scenes? There's there's a hunger. There was always a hunger to find out what was he really like. Well, everybody at Lower Marion saw what he was really like as a teenager, and that's how they remember him. You know, there's a scene in the book where one of his teammates describes to me how Kobe would get nervous when the team bus would go over a bridge or a body mm-hmm. of water. He would white knuckle the seat, and that's what that teammate thinks of. They, he doesn't see. You know the guy dunking on Keith Van Horn in the 2002 Finals, or beating the Celtics in Game Seven of 2010. He sees that kid who was a great basketball player, but was also nervous about going over rivers when they were on the bus, and was afraid of heights. And that's how everybody from that time sees him. And because they didn't really interact with him much from that point on, they hold those memories very dear. And when he died, I think a piece—it felt like a piece of their youth was gone. This this connection that they had to this special time in their lives and the special individual who they knew had been severed.
1: It's kind of crazy just mentioning the idea of Kobe being afraid of heights. Yeah. Given both the way he died, but also that he took that helicopter everywhere. Yes. You know, I mean that, that was his regular form of transportation, um, like his commute. It's it's just kind well, of so crazy. the
0: bridges are a different deal. Like my in-laws my my, my mother in law hates driving over bridges. They live on Long Island. All they have are bridges. She hates it and will go almost to any lengths to avoid having to drive over a bridge. So that is that is a thing.
2: Yeah. Uh, and and he was he was full of contradictions, guys, right? Like he could yeah. be tough, he could be cruel. He could be compassionate. You know, there's plenty of examples in the book. He talks to a, a classmate when they're sophomores and she's thinking of quitting the JV basketball team. And he tells her, no, you got to stick it out. You know, even if you sit on the bench, you'll learn from it. And, you know, very supportive. And he just kind of, there was a lot to the guy for good, for bad, for complex.
1: Uh, last thing I wanted to ask you about, um, a detail in the book that I found both very funny and extremely kobe Can you, uh, re retell the Kobe as a four-year-old karate student story? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So he, you know, he's
2: four years old. He's Joe's playing in Houston for the rockets at the time. And he goes to a karate lesson and he gets pulled out by the sensei to fight another older, bigger kid. And he's terrified and he starts to cry. And the sensei, you know, he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to go in the ring. And the sensei says, no, you go in there, you fight him. And he takes a couple of blows. The kid punches him and kicks him, but he starts giving it back. And it's, you know, when he had retold that story, he had, it was a moment of discovery to him that, oh, okay. Yeah. Life's going to hit me and it's going to be hard, but I can give it back too. And um you know he cited that in a couple different places throughout his life as almost like a turning point you know that yeah i'm i'm not everything's not going to be pleasant and wonderful but i'm going to get kicked but i can kick back and you know he certainly kind of carried that way of thinking throughout the rest of his
1: life it's just perfectly kobe that it is that intense of a setting as a 4 year old
2: yes
0: <laughs> like yeah, it's and, you know very and
2: yeah, you would read stuff and find out stuff like that all the time. Like, he's watching Joe play, you know, in one of his NBA games on TV, and he would watch the game as a three-year-old with a towel over his shoulder and would mop his brow and say, Mom, I'm sweating just like Dad, you know? And just, when you think about how early he knew what he wanted to be and and the path to get to that point, it's pretty remarkable.
0: Um, it is, you know, even for people who... You know, and obviously, you know, our audience for this podcast, you know, they know a lot about Kobe Bryant. Uh, We know a lot about Kobe Bryant. Looking at this book, you learn a tremendous amount about it. I think the way you describe it, you know, as as your initial pitch is is sort of the origin story of the Black Mamba is a fascinating and totally accurate way of looking at it. The book is The Rise Kobe Bryant uh, and the Pursuit of Immortality. The author is Mike Sealski, he is the uh, sports columnist at the Philadelphia Inquiry, also is the writer and narrator of the I Am Kobe podcast. This was really fun. Thank you so much for giving us this much time. We really appreciate it.
2: Guys, I enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much.